0: Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence. And we ask that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God, you would open the word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. So what can we learn from the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal? We come this morning to one of the great power encounters in all of human history, up on a mountain, a contest between two gods, a contest between two sets of prophets, a contest between two worldviews. It's one of the great stories of the Bible. And I want to go through it in some detail, if it's okay with you, and then make some observations about it. Let me just give a quick introduction so we all stay together, because doing a s- series like his story, we do want to get some sense of how the story works. So we've done the patriarchs, we had exodus, we had 40 years of wilderness wanderings, we had the conquest of the land, we had the division of the land, we had the devolution in the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel, Israel said to God, up your nose with the rubber hose, we, we don't like this, we want a king like everybody else, Everyone else has an L.L. Bean backpack. Mom, I want an L.L. Bean backpack. <laughs> so so, so Israel gets a god, and the problem with having a king is kings are great if they're good. If they're not good, it's really bad because they have a lot of power, and they're bad, which means you get a lot of bad power being exercised. After Saul fails, we get David, and then we get David's son Solomon, and Solomon is the quintessential mixed bag. He worships Yahweh, but he worships lots of other things. He has a big a contingent of women, and they worship lots of other gods. And as a result of his misdemeanors, the kingdom is divided in 922 BC. So we're after kingship. And now we've got two kings and two kingdoms and two kings in two capitals. One's in the north, the capital Samaria, and the others in the south, the uh, the capital is Judah. And just while I'm flying by, for those of you who are new to the scriptures, This is one of the really confusing parts of the Old Testament because the northern kingdom is called Israel. Mm -hmm. But before this, when you saw Israel, it was the whole kingdom of Israel. After the division, when you see Israel, it's only the northern kingdom. And so the Old Testament is very confusing if you don't understand that Israel could be one of two things depending on where you are chronologically in the story. Anyway, we're in the division of the kingdom. (laughs) We're in the division of the kingdom. We've got kings, and we have one of the worst kings, one of the most Demonic and devilish and evil figures in all of human history, Ahab, his wicked wife Jezebel, were in the northern kingdom of Israel, the capital of Samaria, and they are ruling and they are sponsoring the false worship of the god Baal, who was a God of fertility and a God of nature. He provided things like water and sun and lots of other things. And what was going on in their kingdom is that the wicked queen was sponsoring the prophets, and she was also trying to help the prophets who all wanted to kill the true prophets. And if you know anything about Elijah, you may remember how he died. So one of the fun Bible quiz questions is, Who are the two people in Scripture who didn't die? You ever heard this one before? Enoch Enoch was not, for God took him, right, in the book of Genesis. And the only other person in all Scripture besides Enoch who apparently didn't die, and you can take it up with God later, I have no idea why, but uh, his name means, my God is Yahweh, or is Yahweh my God? And his job as a prophet, was to turn the hearts of the people back to God and God only, because the first commandment is not, you shall worship the Lord your God on Monday, and then the horoscopes on Tuesday, and the Clemson football team on Wednesday, etc. The the, the Ten Commandments are, you shall worship the Lord God alone, and you shall have no other gods before me. And in the context in which we find ourselves in human history, we have Yahweh being worshipped and Baal being worshipped at the same time. This is syncretism. This is mixing and matching your gods. This is Baal on Monday and Yahweh on Tuesday and Baal on Wednesday, etc. So there is Yahweh worship, even among the false worshipers, but it's not true worship. It's not exclusive worship. And Yahweh wants exclusive worship and worship alone. He is the God after all who gave the Ten Commandments. So when this whirlwind of a man whose job it is to turn the hearts of the people back to God and counters the king, this is the way that the whirlwind of the man is introduced on the pages of scripture. Are you ready? He shows up to the king and says, and I quote, he just literally walks into the presence of the king and says, three years and no rain. And then he disappears. I told you he was a whirlwind. And there's no rain for three years. Now, this causes a huge crisis, not least of which is the animals are dying, people can't eat, water's real important. And things are not going well for Ahab and Jezebel. But he's disappeared. Now, you may remember that Baal is the god of fertility, but he's also the god of nature. And the way that you get rain is you pray to the god of rain. So if you think they prayed to Baal before, what do you think that they were doing now? It was a drought, they were bending over backwards, going nuts. And the people who worshiped Baal were very clear. The reason there was no rain is because this crummy false prophet named Elijah and his crummy false god were messing everything up. And if you just kill him and kill the false worship and get everybody back to Baal, the rain would come. But the rain didn't come. In fact, so much did the rain not come that in the scene immediately preceding this one this morning, the situation is so dire that the king actually goes out With Obadiah the prophet, they divide the two parties to go look for food so that the cattle won't die. So serious is the situation. It's like the president of the United States in the middle of Kansas looking for corn, or something like that. So dire is the situation. And that's where our text begins. Are you ready? I want to divide it into three parts. Elijah and Ahab meet, verses 17 to 19. All the people gather, and the priests of Baal fail, verses 18 to 29. And Elijah's sacrifice burns and produces fire from heaven, verses 30 to 40. you all with me? So let me just walk through it for just a moment. I say this all the time. I want to make sure you understand it. The Bible's lots of things. It's just a good book. It's a good story. They're great characters. This is a fantastic scene. This is a fantastic story. Look at your text in verse 17 and look at the encounter between the whirlwind of the man who hasn't seen seen the king since he disappeared and whom the king is utterly furious. And what does the king say when he sees him? You crumb bun. You make my life miserable. You troubler. Is it you, you troubler of Israel? The word in Hebrew, troubler, means infection. It means germ. It's used in Arabic, denoting the pollution of water by mud. Oh, you germ ruining the health of my country. Oh, you mud polluting my country. That's the way the king greets the prophet. He's the problem. And Elijah, being Elijah, turns it completely the other way around. You know, actually, if you thought about this the right way around, O king, you'd realize that the reason you do not have rain and the reason you're in a mess is because you've turned away from the true God and you're worshiping two gods at once and it's not working out. So let's have a contest. Since your God is not doing very well in the rain department, bring everybody together. Let's have a contest. We'll have two sets of prophets and two sets of bulls, and we'll see whose God is God. And the people say, good idea. On to the next scene. All the people gather, and the priests of Baal fail. Look at verse 21. What a great story this is. You you have no idea how many hundreds of thousands of sermons have been preached on verse 21. We could spend the rest of the morning just on that. How long will you be limping between two opinions? One Old Testament commentator says, it's as if you can't walk and you have two crutches. And it should read, how long do you hop back and forth on one crutch and then the other crutch? Yahweh here, Baal there. How long? It's been going on for years. There's even a famine, a clear evidence of God's judgment to turn you back. And it's not changing anything. And the people, verse 21 at the end, did not answer him a word. There's a lot of silence at certain points in this story. Think of the silence. Just just cast your eye out on the mountain. There's all those prophets of Baal. There's that one guy, you remember him, all by himself. Looks kind of funny, acts kind of funny, whirlwind of man. And it's a contest between all these prophets and this strange whirlwind of a man. I wonder what's going to happen. And he gives the contest, and they do all their stuff. And it's a long, extended liturgy because you do know how Baal worship works. This is a story about idolatry. You do know, brothers and sisters, that you're in a state that worships football. You know that, right? Do you know that there's a Clemson liturgy? You know that, right? You travel up on Friday, right? You have food in the back of your car in the parking lot, right? We even have cheerleaders that lead you through the liturgy, right? There's even a certain part of the physical building, if you know the liturgy well, that the players actually touch. Before they go out. That is a liturgy. That is worship. You are in a state where some people actually worship at the altar of football. What is so remarkable about this scene, if you look at these false prophets, is their incredible characteristics. They have passion, they have devotion, they have sincerity, they have massive energy, and they have creativity. And in the midst of all that, and it's going on for hours, probably started something like 9 o'clock in the morning, and when it ends, is something like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But did you notice in the midst of everything else that this whirlwind of a man decided to insert himself in the midst of the liturgy and suggest that maybe they weren't doing it well enough? And could they try harder? Did you, did you see the sarcasm? He even, he even says in Hebrew, maybe he's thinking about something, and he's not hearing you. And then he says, maybe he's turning aside, which is a very delicate way of translating the Hebrew. That word literally means turning aside to go to the bathroom. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's relieved himself. You need to really get your act together. Maybe you can get his attention that way. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter how hard they do it. It doesn't matter how elaborate it is. Look at verse 26. It's very important that you see how devastating it is as it's portrayed in the text. There was no voice. There was no answer, and no one heeded and they limped around the altar. All that work for nothing. And that's the problem with false gods, is that when crunch time comes, even if you go through all the liturgy and you do everything right, they avail nothing. They always have, and they always will. You cannot worship Yahweh and anything else, and anything else but Yahweh will not satisfy and will not work. And that long silence at the beginning is punctuated by an even longer silence at the end before Elijah gets going. And all those people and all that noise, and then there's just one guy. And that brings us to our last scene. And he says, come near to me. Look at verse 30. This is the part of life as a chemistry major. I remember the teacher would occasionally do one of those really terrific experiments where the, the chemicals changed lots of colors, and he'd say, come near, and you got to all surround him in a circle so that there was no way he could trick you. You got to watch, this is that kind of thing. You get to watch the teacher and the beaker, and there's nowhere for him to hide. If it doesn't work, the great experiment and all of his power is of naught. And Elijah's t- very effectively using all of the... Uh, instruments at his disposal to make clear that this is a divine miracle and that there's no question that it's Yahweh, a Yahweh alone that does this. So everybody gets to watch. Can you imagine the scrutiny that he's under? Can you imagine the pressure that he's under. And then he takes 12 stones, he rebuilds the altar of God. Incredible symbolism there, trying to build back the people's loyalty to their God. And just in case there's any doubt, he orders for once, twice, three times, they're to drench the altar with water so it's completely drenched. You may notice there's a, there's a bifurcation in the story, right? The prophets of Baal didn't have to do this. They had a non-watered bull, and they couldn't even come through. This is a triply watered bull. And as more than one commentator points out, when the dramatic moment happens, it happens in a very important way. First, it happens in answer to prayer, verse 36. Look at the prayer. Oh, Lord, things are so serious. I'm an American Christian. Please heal my aunt's leg. Right? That's an American Christian prayer. You don't get the sense that there's anything at stake when most Americans pray. It's sort of like, well, maybe God will do something, maybe he won't. You don't get that sense with biblical characters when they pray. They're praying to the great and awesome God who made the heavens and the earth by the power of his outstretched hand. Look at this prayer. Oh, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, bang, bang, bang. Let it be known that you are God in all Israel, and I am your servant. I've done all these things according to your word. This is the psalmist's prayer. You can learn a lot about prayer from this prayer, if you look at the Psalms and you look at the way that they pray, they're honest, but they read God back to him. Have you ever noticed that? They say, look, God, let me just tell you how it is. You said we're your people, and you said you're our God, and last time I checked, our neighbors are obliterating us, and that's not exactly how it's supposed to go. Where's the power? Come on, God, come through. That's an honest prayer, but it also seems like something's at stake, and if God doesn't act, it will be terrible, which is exactly the situation here. That's the way it always is when prayer is real prayer. It's prayer to a real God who has real power, and their real stakes, and that's where we are here. Answer me, O oh Lord. Answer me. Why? So that I can get all the credit, no. So that I can get more money, no, no, no. So they turn back to God. That's his name. Yahweh is my God. Yahweh is God. And the fire fell. And more than one commentator points out, when you and I do fire, fire goes up. It goes up in the fireplace. It goes up from the match. Fire goes from the earth up. This fire came from heaven down to make absolutely certain that everybody knew that it was divine fire and divine fire only. And it had to come first before the rain. Don't miss that significant detail. The scene immediately after this one, back comes the water. But the water can't come until this happens. Why not? Anything before this where water comes, there could be confusion about the water somehow coming from Baal. After this, no more bail, no more bail profits, no more bail credit for the rain. And the water. It had to be in that order. Then the fire of the Lord consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. And just in case we missed all the details, the end of verse 38, it even licked up all the water in the trench, three sets of four buckets fulls of water, all gone. Boom. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. That's Elijah's ministry in a single phrase. And he said, You go your way, I go mine, you worship your God, I worship my God. You say potato, I say potato. No, no, this is not a twenty-first century text. These people are cancerous in the in the in the country of Israel. They are spreading a cancerous false worship. They have to be hewed down and destroyed just because they are cancerous and if they're not done then that false worship will continue to spread and it will continue to threaten the true worship of Yahweh you all with me so here endeth the story now uh, we cannot all sit down and all go home sorry got to go from preaching to meddling let me make two observations for your thoughts this morning first of all this is a passage about idolatry This is a passage about idolatry. One of the interesting books in the New Testament is 1 John. It's not very long, but it's loaded. And toward the very end, there's this little throwaway line. And he likes to use the word children because it's a very family-oriented book. The church is the family of God. And he says this toward the very end of chapter 5. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And the reason he says that is because, in the words of one theologian, the human heart is an idol factory You do know this, right? Why is it, ask yourself, that Jesus says this in the Gospels? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You ever thought about that? Think about what he's saying. He doesn't say he cannot be a good disciple or he cannot be a pretty good disciple. He says he cannot be a disciple at all. And he says, hate. What in the world is going on? Jesus is a crummy teacher? Can't be that, right? No, he's using a rabbinic technique of caricature where they give you the truth, but they exaggerate it and blow it up a larger proportion than it deserves to make sure that you pay attention to it, which means what it means this, your love for your parents, your children, your spouse should be as hate in comparison with your love for me. If you're really going to be a disciple, that's what he's saying. Why is he saying it? Because your love for your parents and your love for your spouse and your love for your children are exactly the garden where idols really grow. It's not the crummy stuff in life that's the real threat to God. It's the good stuff. It's the good stuff. Let me give you two illustrations to ponder. First, from my own professor, J.I. Packer, in his book, Your Father Loves You. He says it this way He says, What other gods could we possibly have besides the Lord? I just love Dr. Packer. I'm sorry he's gone from this world to the next. I really am. Plenty. <laughs> For Israel, there were the Canaanite Baals, the jolly nature gods whose worship was a rampage of gluttony, drunkenness, and ritual prostitution. For us, there are still the great gods of sex, shekels, and stomach, an unholy trinity constituting one God, self. And then there's that other enslaving trio pleasure, possessions, and position which is described in the New Testament, 1 John 2, 16, if you're taking notes, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. He's still not done. Football, the firm, and family are also gods for some. Oh, that'll preach. Football, football, the firm, and family are also gods for some. Indeed, he says, the list of gods is endless for anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his god and the claimants for this prerogative. Are legion. In the matter of life's basic loyalty, listen to this sentence temptation is a many headed monster. We will battle idolatry all of our lives. This passage is in the Bible for lots of reasons, one of which is to always warn us about the garden of the false gods that can grow in our lives without our intention, unless we're paying attention. And it's to call us back to ask the question are we will, really worshiping Jesus only, or we worship Jesus and? Because they were worshiping Yahweh and Baal. The other one is from the ministry of Donald Gray Barnhouse, whom I've mentioned in the past. He was the minister of 10th Presbyterian Church, which is right in the heart of Philadelphia, still one of the great churches in America today. He had a young woman at the night service, and she came up to him in the line. And she said she was a Christian, and she wanted to follow Christ. But then she said this. She said, I want to be famous too. I like this scene because I wondered what I would have say to her. She said, I want to pursue a stage career in New York. After I've made it in the theater, then I'll follow Christ completely. There's a nice low-key thing to say to a minister in a, in a line. So here's what Barnhouse did. He took a key out of his pocket. He went down to the corner, which was only about three or four paces. There was a postal box, and he he took his key, and he scratched the postal box. He said, this is what God will let you do. God will let you scratch the surface of success. He will let you get close enough to the top to know what it is, but he will never let you have it because he will never let one of his children have anything rather than himself. Very interesting encounter. I bet you know there's more to the story, and there is. She came back. At the end of her life, she confessed that he had told her life story exactly to the letter. She had dabbled in the stage. She even had her picture once in a very prominent place in a national ma- magazine, but she'd never quite made it. She told Barnhouse, and I quote, I can't tell you how many times in my discouragement I closed my eyes and I've seen you scratching on that postal box with your key. God let me scratch the ev- edges, but he never gave me anything in place of himself. Boom. That'll preach. Every once in a while, I like polls. I don't like most of them. But they once did a poll, and they asked Americans this question. What would you be willing to give up for $10 million? You give us this, we give you $10 million. Two thirds of Americans polled would agree to at least one of the following, and you have to brace yourself for this. This is a real poll, these are real answers. I wonder, this is from the early 90s, I really wonder what it would be today. 25% said they would abandon their entire family, 25% said they would abandon their entire church, 23% said they would become prostitutes for a week or more if necessary. said they'd give up their American citizenship. 16% said they'd leave their spouses. 10% said they would withhold their testimony and let a murderer go free. 7% said they'd kill a stranger. And the one that makes me saddest, and I'm glad it's the smallest, but it still makes me sad, would put all their children up for adoption, 3%. Now, if you don't think that that poll hits close to home, you're not paying attention Jesus didn't say you got to hate your father and your mother to be my disciples, because he was kidding around. Elijah is not up there on that mountain kidding around, brothers and sisters. The question you got to ask yourself if you're going to take this passage seriously is, where are the bales, or are there any other bales in my life? You got to ask that. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. Promise me you'll walk out of here and prayerfully ask that of yourself this week even if it's your wife as great as she is or your husband as great as he is they can be an idol anything can be a threat to god be careful be watchful be aware second this is a passage about power this is a god who has power that's a real prayer with real stakes because the god to whom it's prayed is really really powerful You find yourself from time to time wondering if people in the church know anything about a God of power in the West. It doesn't seem like there's much at stake. Here's Annie Dillard in her book, Teaching a Stone to Walk. On the whole, she says, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions Does anyone have the foggiest notion of what sort of power we blithely invoke every week? Or do, as I suspect, no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry stets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill on a Sunday morning. It is madness to to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church when we should all be wearing crash helmets ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares they should lash us to our pews for the sleeping god may someday wake and cause offense or the waking god may draw us out to where we can never return do you know anything about a god of power you do if you think about it think about jesus for a second think about mark's gospel Think about the way Mark portrays Jesus. Jesus has so many characteristics. Yes, he's full of love. Yes, he's full of compassion. But if you're going to take Jesus seriously, you've got to reckon with the fact that he is a person of real authority and incredible power. The first scene in Mark's gospel, three times that word authority. Where does this guy get all this authority, this authority, this authority? And in Mark 4 and 5, Mark deliberately packs a whole set of scenes together so that we won't miss the awesome authority of Christ. At the end of chapter 4, you get the stilling of the storm. You know the scene. They're in the back of the boat. He's asleep. All of a sudden, things are not going well. Don't you care? And he wakes up and says, well, you know, gee, darn. (laughs) Peace, be still, bang. Which means what? It means Jesus has the power over nature. There goes Baal in one scene. What's the next scene in Mark? Oh, it's chapter 5. There's that character, the Gerasene demoniac. You remember him. He's so demon-possessed and so dark and so encased within himself that he lives in a graveyard and he spends all day trying to gash himself to death. Everybody in his hometown is terrified of him. And Jesus casts the demons out whose names are Legion, and he's in his right mind, and everybody in the the town knows him, and they're terrified, and they've seen real power because they've literally never seen this guy healthy ever. And Jesus has completely restored him, which means what? It means Jesus has the power over the demonic. And what's the next scene? Oh, that's when Jairus' daughter is really sick, and the people come to Jesus. And while they're on the way to Jesus, he gets stuck in a crowd, and they say, well, she's died. It's too bad. And Jesus keeps coming, and he turns around in the crowd and says, who touched me? And there's a woman with issue of blood. You remember this? And he turns around, and he says... Who touched me, daughter, your faith has made you well. Which means what? It means Jesus has the power over sickness. Are you paying attention? So Jesus has the power over nature. Jesus has the power over the demonic. Jesus has the power over, over a sickness. And just in case we missed it, what's the last scene? Jairus' daughter is dead. And he goes to the house and says, little, de- little girl, I s- to say to you, Arise. Which means what? He is the power of death. And so when he crests over the hill, as it were, and comes to his hometown in Mark chapter 6, it's this Jesus. This Jesus who has power over nature and over the demonic and over sickness and over death. This is the Jesus whom we worship. That's the Jesus of the pages of the New Testament. But is it our Jesus? That's what this passage begs us to ask. Let me do natural power and work my way up for just a second. When I was in college in May 1980, one of the more sensational occurrences of raw natural power in recent history in North America occurred when Mount St. Helens in the Cascade Range of Washington exploded. You may know the story. At 8.32 AM in May 1980, the explosion ripped 1,300 feet off the top of the mountain with a force of, are you ready? Ten million tons of TNT, roughly equal to 500 Hiroshima's. Sixty people were killed, most by a blast of 300-degree heat traveling at 200 miles an hour. Some of the people who were killed were as far as 16 miles from the original blast. And oh, by the way, I lived in the Pacific Northwest for two years. You may know they have those spectacular Douglas firs, get up to 150 feet sometimes at their at their tallest. It leveled so many 150 feet foot Douglas firs as far as 17 miles away that, and I quote, 3.2 billion, that's with a B, Board feet of lumber were destroyed in the explosion. That's enough lumber to build 200,000 three-bedroom homes. Question, is that power? You better believe it. That's natural power, brothers and sisters. And as Christians, we believe that we worship a God of supernatural power, which means what? It means more power than that. Paul's phrase is, We believe in the God who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or imagine. And my question to you this morning is, do you know a God like that? Do you follow a God like that? And most importantly, with regard to power, do you worship a God like that? This is a God who calls for lots of responses, but especially worship. It makes me think of... Peter Schaeffer's wonderful play and book Equus. Schaeffer wrote Amadeus, for whom he's more famous now. But Equus is a weird story for another time. It's about a boy who's stuck in terrible delusions about horses, which is why it's called Equus. And he has a a psychiatrist named Dr. Martin Dysart, who's trying to help this boy with these constant delusions of horses. And there's this memorable moment, and I still remember seeing it on Broadway, with Anthony Perkins playing Dr. Dysart. And he's, he's gotten to the point where he knows the boy well enough to know that he's worshiping horses, which is not what you're supposed to do. But Dysart is reflecting on his life and on the other things that are happening in his life and looking at this boy and realizing he's, there's a sense in which he's jealous of the boy because the boy has something which he does not, which is at least he's worshiping something. Whereas Dysart is worshiping nothing. And in this incredible soliloquy, you can hear a pin drop in the Broadway theater. He says, right in the middle of the soliloquy, he says, and I quote, without worship, we shrink. A secular psychologist. Boom. He nailed it. We absolutely shrink. The reason, in part, that we don't know this God of power is we don't worship him like he's got the power that he does and we should he is the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or imagine so I give you brothers and sisters the story of Elisha and the prophets of Baal be careful of idols little children keep yourself from idols you can ask if somebody asks you what the sermon is about you can say watch out for idols and you can blame it on me if you want but don't forget this God of power we need a God of power We need a God who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or imagine. We need a God who calls forth our worship because without him we shrink, but with him we grow. And real worshiping Christians are Christians that can do great things for the kingdom. Where is the God of Elijah? That's the question, brothers and sisters. Imagine yourself at the end of that scene as a witness. If Baal is God, serve him. But if Yahweh is God, serve him. To whom shall we go, the disciples say in John 6. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's Jesus and Jesus only. In Jesus' name, amen.